This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Lori Bowl is the Portland, Oregon-based founder and visionary gardener behind the well-known and well-loved Danger Garden blog. In true Danger Garden fashion, Lori has a new book out entitled Fearless Gardening, which empowers us all to be bold, break the rules, and grow what you love. Lori joins me today to empower all of us with a new sense of boldness. Welcome. I'm so glad to have you back with me, Lori. Thank you, Jennifer. It is wonderful to be back. I want you to share with us what your personal mission statement might be in your garden and in your garden communication and community. What would that mission statement be right now, Lori? Um, In my garden, basically it is to grow all the cool plants. Um, I want to get to watch my plants grow and change and bloom and die and mix together and how the seasons affect them. It is my own laboratory where I get to conduct multiple experiments. Um, And the garden is also where I go to relax, where I go to uh, lose myself, uh, to work hard. um, And it produces beauty that I get to enjoy both outdoors and indoors. As for my communication, um, I want to share the excitement of gardening, share what others in my community are creating and the excitement that you can find in just walking through the neighborhood and looking at nature all around you or going to visit a park or going to visit a nursery and um, buying the plants. I want to get people excited about uh, plants and gardening. Can you describe that excitement in, in any kind of way for you, like that feeling you get in your garden watching your plants and sort of interrelating with them or that experience of going to either a new nursery or a good nursery? It's awe, basically. I'm just awed at what plants and the natural world do all around us, either with no help whatsoever from us. The mosses growing in the forests around here right now are just they glow. They are so beautiful. Um, or, you know, what the gardens that, that people create and the interrelated communities of the plants and how they um, contrast and complement each other. Mm-hmm. So I know that we've spoken before, and many people will remember our Danger Garden conversation a few years back. But for those new listeners or those who want to be reminded, take us back a little bit. Where were you born and raised and who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a woman for whom both awe in the plant kingdom and excitement about living your life in the company of plants uh, would be a, a driving motivator in your life, Lori? Sure. So I was born in Spokane, Washington, which is zone five. Um, but I was born into a family where gardening just was. There was never an idea that it wasn't something that you would do. My mother um, has a ornamental garden. My dad took care of the vegetables. My grandparents that we spent a lot of time with um, both gardened, although my, my grandma 
um, <laughs> her gardening consisted of sticking uh, silk flowers into lava rock. Uh, <laughs> I kid you not. But my grandpa was a very, very fine uh, vegetable gardener. And actually, my grandma grew some beautiful hostas and had the most gorgeous purple clematis by the front door that was just beautiful. Anyway, um, I lived in Seattle for a few years and got a taste of what a different warmer growing zone was all about, mm. which was heaven. And uh, even though I was in an apartment, I had window boxes uh, where I could grow some tomatoes and some other ornamental um, plants. And then house plants, of course, were always a big part of um, my world. But then I moved back to Spokane where I could finally buy a house and have an actual garden. And in between there, at some point, I had been sent to uh, Phoenix for a business meeting. And that's when I discovered the desert plants that would go on to become such a part of my mm. uh, love of plants. So that really got me started on that pathway. Yeah. And um, when the opportunity came up to move to Portland, and have a zone eight garden <laughs> that changed everything. So, <laughs> I bet it did. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, even though it's a very wet environment, uh, suddenly I could grow a lot more of the plants that I love in the ground. And I've taken full advantage of that. And remind us, how long have you been in the Portland area? We moved to Portland in 2004 and bought our home in 2005. So I've been gardening on this chunk of land for the summer will be 16 years. Wow. That's no, a pretty, yeah, right. something like that. That'll be, that'll <laughs> be a quite an, it is quite an anniversary. That's a nice long um, seasonal ebb and flow and, you know, long-term relationship with this space. And describe the genesis of this concept of the danger garden, why the title, what your garden is characterized by. And then I think that will move us really beautifully into, um, you know, the most recent kind of culmination of these adventures, which uh, would be the new book. So I was working at an architecture firm at the time, and our marketing department was being encouraged to start some uh, each of us to start a blog about something we were passionate about and then link back to the company, sort of a, a grassroots marketing effort because it was be the beginning of the recession and things were not going so well. So I actually got to start the blog at work and I was trying to come up with a name. Uh, Danger Garden actually was my husband's invention. Um, we had just adopted a pug and as you know, pugs have kind of bulgy eyes and I have way too many uh, agaves <laughs> in the garden for a pug to move around uh, without danger. So Andrew came up with the idea of danger garden and I blogged for about a year at work and then uh, was laid off as the economy continued to plummet, but um, luckily had the blog and just kept going with it, discovered how much I loved communicating and writing about gardens, taking photos and sharing my passion with my readers. Yeah. And so on the blog, you, you do quite a bit of sharing of your 
um, your adventures and experiences season by season there in your Portland home garden, um, as well as, and you kind of um, intimated this a little earlier, sharing visits to other gardens, other regions, nurseries, um, thoughts on the gardening world in this ongoing blog. Summarize for us, you know, some of the big iterations in the danger garden, um, that being the name of your home garden, more or less, and um, how and why that then moved a year and a half ago into becoming the foundation for a book. My personal garden has, well, when we bought the house, it was nothing but lawn and old roses and daisies. So the very much not my style. Mm-mm. The blog shows most of the transition. I, we'd lived here, I think, four years at the point that I started the blog. So I'd already gotten started. But um, through discovering um, different plants and what will grow here and what will grow here for a few years until we get a cold winter, and then that's the end of that. Um, so I had slowly discovered what combination of agave species and soil preparation and location in the garden would yield success and have over time been able to work more of the xeric style plants into my garden. Uh, We in Portland are very wet, but not in the summertime. It goes completely dry once the summer hits. So that requires a very special plant that can withstand the winter uh, rains and then the summer dry. Yeah. So um, shortly after my garden appeared in Sunset Magazine, um, I got an email from Tom Fisher at Timber Press uh, saying that we asking me if I wanted to get together to talk about ideas for a book, and we tossed some ideas back and forth. But the thing that kept coming up again was all the emails that I get from people saying, "Oh, I never would have thought that I could." you know, grow agaves or, you know, just all the different versions of what people are discovering, maybe they really can do. So um, the idea that breaking the rules, gardening for yourself and discovering how you want to live with plants uh, would be the basis for the book really spoke to me in that there are a lot of gardening books out there and I didn't want to write a how-to or put myself out there as an expert on something because really all that I am an expert on is my own garden. Mm. But I wanted to share that excitement of learning and trying out different things. And that's the basis for how Fearless Gardening was born. I love it. I love it. And I especially love that statement you just made of, um, I might not be an expert on everything or a lot of things, but I am the expert on my own garden. And this is kind of, this is one of the empowering premises from which you begin this book. And I am a long-standing gardener. I am 55 years old. I've been in my current garden for eight, eight seasons. And I read the book front to back and just kept highlighting things, Lori, and going, oh my God, that is such a good idea. I, you know, wow, okay, yes. 
And um, and it cracked me up, and it cracked my partner up while he watched me <laughs> read this, because he, I think, realized there was going to be some renovation going on <laughs> um, in my home garden or or his. Take us back to this point at which, you know, you and Tom Fisher are talking. You start to distill down what it is you'd like to share, and what it is that um, keeps kind of niggling at you in these emails you get from a lot of people. Um, and this idea of breaking, quote unquote, the rules, which I just love because the minute you think about that from a meta kind of perspective, you're like, who who made those anyway? And where were they? And, and what was their agenda? And um, the minute you question where or why or who a rule quote, rule came from, right there, you're liberated. That's why I think one of the greatest things of this book right off the bat. So take us back to that moment and how you then worked on what to include and how to organize it. And then we'll walk through some of the chapters. Sure. Um, when I sat down to start writing, and I suppose I should should preface that by saying that I was never someone who wanted to write a book. I know there are a lot of people out there who that is a goal and that is something that they want to achieve. And it just never crossed my mind that um, that is something that I would do. But of course, after writing a blog for 12 years, um, writing is very much a part of how I process things. So it was just very natural mm -hmm. once I sat down and I started thinking back um, the peony uh, story that I share in the introduction um, it just is such a huge reminder of all of the fear that I had that I was going to do it wrong. Um, I had these plants and I was walking, I finally had ground to plant in and I was walking around my garden and then I just, you know, should it go there? No, no, it's too shady. It's too, you know, whatever. And just being sure that I was going to do it wrong and I was going to kill the plant. And, you know, I look back on it and I think, okay, so you killed the plant. Um, that's not the end of the world. You can buy another one and, and go forward or, you know, so the plant thrives and you, it gets too big for the space. Still, you enjoyed it for those years that you were able to live with it. So um, the introduction to the book just kind of flowed thinking of all the, the mistakes are the things that really scared me when I was a beginning gardener. And then um, the idea to include a little nod to uh, Ruth Bancroft and Ghana Walska. Also just, I started writing one morning and I just knew I have to talk about these women that are so um, big in my imagination for what they created and how they went about doing it. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to stop you there and have you actually bring listeners up to speed a little bit on that, especially those that are far away and might not be familiar with these just real kind of sheroes of um, of fearless, bold gardening in, in their times and in their spaces. Start off with Ruth Bancroft and tell us a little bit about her and what stands out for you as so remarkable and... Um, a leader you would want to model? So Ruth Bancroft was the woman behind the Ruth Bancroft Garden in Walnut Creek, California. And of course, now we look at succulents as being a very California appropriate plant uh, for their lack of uh, large water needs. 
and you just assume they're everywhere because they are. You go to a nursery and, you know, even up here in Portland, our grocery store nursery has a huge selection of succulents. But back when Ruth mm. started, this was not the case. And she knew what she wanted and she started collecting and expanding and planting. And she was the succulent uh, queen before, you know, these things were considered popular or even widely available. Uh, her mm -hmm. dry garden, meaning there was no supplementary water, uh, set a new standard for how one gardens. You don't need the large, expansive lawn. Uh, so the Ruth Bancroft Garden was actually the first garden conservancy garden. So once Ruth passed away, it would be protected and continue to operate as a um, public garden. And that collection of cacti and succulents and arid plants in the middle of Walnut Creek, California, which is basically a suburban environment now, but was uh, when she began was actually fairly rural and agricultural um, around her, uh, is, is still one of the great experiments in dry land gardening um, in, in a state that should be all dry land gardening for the most part. I mean, unless you're, you know, really right on the coast. And even then, um, there are, you know, we have these dry, 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 hot summers, um, you know, everything being relative uh, to just how hot it gets. But, and her collections and her intrepid experiments with those collections as to pushing hardiness boundaries and uh, experimenting with mulching or planting techniques that would ensure better hardiness uh, were really, are still to this day phenomenal. And if you haven't read The Bold Dry Garden, Bold dry I think gar it's maybe garden, called, yes. yeah, uh, by Johanna Silver um, with Ruth Bancroft, it's well worth reading. So then take us to Ghana Walska, because I think um, Ruth is such a, a you know, pioneer and, and hero, but Ghana Walska is just the theatrics of boldness as well, which I think brings in your great sense of humor and, um, and drama. The theatrics of boldness. That's a wonderful, wonderful way to put it. Um, <laughs> so these women are so connected in my mind as I experienced their gardens, but they could not really be any more different. Um, mm. Whereas Ruth seems to have been very practical and and down to earth and you know you, there are so many pictures of her actually out there digging and working in her garden it was very much a hands-on for her you know then there's Ghana who in her fancy dresses and pearls and hair done just so um, I'm sure she was more likely to be conducting a group of gardeners yeah. to install the plants to her vision so um, nothing seems to have been too much for her she entire collections uh purchased and planted together and and crazy ideas of what you know right next to each other you have very different gardening styles but it it all works because she had this overarching vision of what she wanted her garden to be theatrical is just the very best word for lotus land and ghana after all she was in the opera and loved to be on stage and perform this is Cultivating Place. Lori Bowl is the Portland, Oregon-based founder and visionary gardener behind the well-known and well-loved 
Danger Garden blog. Her new book, Fearless Gardening, empowers us all to be bold, break the rules, and grow what we love. We'll be right back for more lessons on boldness in the garden. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So in listening to this conversation once more, since I recorded it with Lori a bit ago now, I'm wondering if you all out there listening, and I really do picture us all together over coffee or wine or a leisurely walk as we share these conversations, I wonder if you are sometimes left bewildered by what might seem like mixed messages. On the one hand, I'm encouraging us all to garden with our places. And on the other hand, I am thrilled with Lori's perspective and refreshing approach, even while she admits to gardening like she lives in Southern California while she lives in Portland, Oregon. And I've been turning this over in my head intently this past few days. Why in my own mind is this not a mixed message? Hmm. For starters, I guess I would say without hesitation that a foundational garden belief, maybe the number one foundational garden belief for me, is that there really is no right way to garden. And my number two belief is all about intention and heart and learning. We're supposed to bring our creativity and have fun with our garden relationships and spaces. For me, this is really, really important. Because if it's not fun, if you don't fall in love with this process and practice, why would you stick with it? And finally, I've been to Lori's garden, and it is not only creative and colorful and a refuge for her and a place of artful practice, but it is in fact a contributing member of her wider community, human and more than human. Her dry front garden with many native and climate-adapted manzanitas and agaves, succulents and flowers and trees, does provide habitat, food and water for insects and birds, and it's a welcome engagement with human passers-by. Her garden is not a blind guzzler of unnecessary natural resources, rather a really judicious and conscious user of those resources. It is an actively loved and cared for space, not a default and ignored space. And so while she makes a huge personal effort to care for plants who are not meant for her climate, she does so with sweat equity, not environmental overload. And so it becomes a both and also equation instead of an either or equation. It becomes a relationship based on fun and collaboration with her place rather than one based on fear and avoidance. And for any of us in our own spaces, this is always going to come back to there is no right way to garden and you are the best expert about your own garden. 
As Lori and I were talking, and as I have been thinking about this, some common marriage counseling suggestions keep coming to mind for me. Suggestions for when things get challenging or things get rote and dull and you stop really seeing or really paying attention to and appreciating each other. Suggestions like schedule a date night with your loved one. Surprise them with a gift, with an act of service, or amp up the playfulness romantically. Listen to them and make conscious time for them. Maybe this sounds funny or even silly, but maybe it's resonating with you. Because after all, our gardens are just like all of our other loved ones. When we show up and listen and know them, They will return our love in spades. This is Good Practice, in the garden and beyond. We're back now to our conversation with Lori Bowl, gardener, blogger, and writer from the Pacific Northwest, who is sharing with us the catalyst for her new book, Fearless Gardening. As we come back, Lori shares some of the drawbacks to what she refers to as the commandments of gardening. These perceived and passed along so-called rules of gardening, which in her gardening life she's found can often hold her back more than they support or help her. Right off in the introduction, you know, as you've already shared this, this peony story, which I think any gardener has a, a a kind of parallel life story of of a plant that you are just almost paralyzed by because you just don't want to mess it up. Um, and you know whether it was expensive or it came from someone you love or you know whatever it might be, um, there are those moments. So take us to how you decided to organize the book uh, from this recognition that we are all sometimes paralyzed by one our own fear, two our own inexperience, and three this idea of these rules. You make a, a great point in all three of those comments. Not only is that how someone can feel in the garden. That's how you feel when you sit down to write a book. Um, there are <laughs> rules and I, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so I had roughly sketched out things that I wanted to cover. And they, for the most part, um, before I even started writing and I had come up with sort of an outline, that stayed pretty true right through to, to when the book is you know in your hands now um so the first chapter there is no right way to garden is where i introduce ruth and ghana and then go on to talk about the so-called rules or as i decided to call them the commandments because (laughs) that's how they're they're um treated these are you know things that have been handed down on stone tablets and you you absolutely cannot um break these commandments or else right right (laughs) <laughs> so after we we talk about the commandments and it's not so much that I say, um, you know, the experts say do this, but I say do this. It's more um, 
the experts say do this, here's what I've done, you know, how are you going to break the rules? Um, giving people right. the permission to, you know, filter all of those things through their own growing conditions and their own experience and come up with what's right for them. Give us an example of these commandments. And um, and I love that you point out that you are not saying break these rules uh, just because you can. Rather, like, develop a sense of critical thinking, develop a sense of observation and understanding on how these you know, quote, commandments either work or don't work for you in your climate, in your garden. And that critical thinking does give us this sense of confidence that you are encouraging us to embrace. Yes. So one of the commandments that um, it's just so contrary to everything about the way I garden is the one where you should plan your garden and only purchase from a list of things that you've acknowledged there is a need or space for in your garden. Do not make impulse purchases. (laughs) (laughs) I hope everybody listening is laughing their head off right now. (laughs) I I know people who live like this though. People who do, they, oh, I can't buy that. I need to, I need to research it and make sure that it's not going to get too big or it's not going to, you know, they, they are very much list driven and my whole garden is an impulse purchase. <laughs> it's that's the beauty of it. That's the fun. That's when you discover, um, you know, just it's a beautiful spring day. I know the nurseries are packed with new plants and just go fall in love and then come home and figure out where in the heck you're going to put that. Right. And I do uh, encourage people to understand that plant purchases don't have to be a lifetime commitment. It is if you buy it and you enjoy it for a season or two, that's enough. It's it, if it has to be gifted onto another gardener or if, you know, it dies or you even decide it's time to dig it up. Um, that's okay. And, and compost it. it. It would be sending it to a better, a better life perhaps. And, you know, and I in no way mean to be glib uh, and nor does Lori, we are great plant lovers. We are not saying go out and, you know, be irreverent of the plant life we love, but also just, you know, I, you know, I think I get from you in the book, Lori, is this constant evaluation of what works, what doesn't work. And it's kind of the, the Marie Kondo of the garden. Like if it doesn't bring you joy, uh, let it go. And, yes. and find something that does bring you joy because that's going to be a happy plant and a happy garden. Um, so go on to create a garden you love the, the after the, the second chapter, which is there is no right way to garden. Everybody say that after Lori. There is no right way to garden. Um, go on to create a garden you, you love. And this kind of brings up that post you made on Instagram the other day with the quote uh, that you shared from, from one of the gardens in the book. And I really liked this quote. So that actually was a commenter that that, unfortunately that quote is not in the book because it was a commenter on Instagram who said that if you're if you showed your friends 15 gardens they should be able to pick out which one is yours because your garden should look like you yeah um that just yeah it's the cold uh cookie cutter um builders special uh that people inherit when they buy a new home is just so such a blank canvas and an area for them to turn into something that is their own. 
Um, so in Create a Garden That You Love, I look at how people have gone about doing that. And in this chapter, as well as other chapters from the book, there are a special kind of a focus garden visit on someone who I feel really shows how you go about doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, in this chapter, um, my friend Peter, who is a very creative individual, his garden is featured and um nothing is out of bounds as far as he's concerned. He has a fire pit that does have some logs in it that he's never burned. And then cannas, canna lilies with their big red flame-like leaves. And he's also a glass artist. So he cuts some red flames out of glass. Mm. So it's an art piece basically. And Well, if I tried to do that in my garden, it would look out of place and silly because it's just not my style. He carries it off because it's very much an extension of who he is and how he looks at the garden and the creative individual that he is. Mm -hmm. So um, a few garden visits in this chapter and then just looking at different ways that your garden will um, change over the years, things that have inspired me. Um, tips for consistency of materials and how you go about creating a garden you love. Yeah. And then um, you go into the chapter on explore the possibilities. And I really, you know, I, I love the first chapter and its whole premise, but the second chapter reminds you that creating a garden is not a static end game. It is an ongoing relationship and joy and play and um, an experiment and exploration. Exactly. So while the second chapter, Create a Garden You Love, reminds you that you need to love your garden. You are the only one that you need to make happy with your garden. The next chapter, Explore the Possibilities, looks at different ways that you can play in your garden. Uh, I start with a quote from Monty Don of uh, BBC Gardener's World about gardens really just being a place where adults can go outside and play. And that's so how I look at the Mm -hmm. garden. I reinvent it every year and have fun with small vignettes and, you know, a a vertical gardening um, container hanging in a tree with um, Spanish moss dripping down around it. And just the idea that it's not a do it and be done with it uh, sort of thing. It's a constant, um, you're, you're constantly exploring the possibilities of what you can create and what you can do in the garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, um, you know, it, I, I just actually see that hashtag, <laughs> go outside and play, <laughs> um, because we could, all, we could all use more of it. In Explore the Possibilities, you know, give, us, give us an example of one of the uh, stories you share or the garden that exemplified this for you. Oh, there are so many. Um, what came to mind as soon as you said that was a garden that I visited in Denver during the Garden Bloggers Fling that was there a couple of summers ago. And it was a garden that had several crevice gardens worked into the overall. Um, So some people thought it was a little abrupt to go from a beautiful lush green lawn to this mountain of rocks erupting in the corner of the garden. But I loved the 
the kind of difference of textures and styles and how it, it really, once you stood back and looked at it, it really did make sense how they had worked it all in. And you just get the small details of that crevice garden and the tiny plants that are growing within it and the beautiful structure of the rocks and the small hillsides and and then shady areas that are created um, something like that in your garden just it reinvents what you have to work with and and the um, microclimates within your garden this is cultivating place Lori Bowl is the Portland, Oregon-based founder and visionary gardener behind the well-known and well-loved Danger Garden blog. Her new book, Fearless Gardening, empowers us all to be bolder in the garden. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. This is is the second to last episode in May of 2021. And I want to thank each and every one of you who've participated to date in the Cultivating Place sustaining membership offer available through May 31st. If you become a monthly recurring donor to Cultivating Place at the $10 or higher level between now and May 31st, I will send you your very own signed hardback copy of my new book, under Western skies. All of your donations make this work of cultivating place possible, sustainable. Your contributions support these civil gardening conversations, which connect us and which engage, empower, and encourage gardeners making a thoughtful difference from their own gardens across the world. It's wonderful interdependence, and so thank you for being out there listening. Together, we rethink, we learn, and we grow better. To become a sustaining monthly donor at CultivatingPlace.com, just go to the website, CultivatingPlace.com, and follow the support button that you will find at the top right-hand corner of every page there at CultivatingPlace.com. And thank you in advance. You have no idea how gratifying it is to know you are out there listening and growing with me. We're back now to our conversation with Lori Bowl, founder of the Danger Garden blog and author of Fearless Gardening. Once she moved from an apartment to a house with a small urban yard, Lori thought she would no longer need to garden in containers for the most part. But as we come back, she shares how she came to count on the possibilities allowed for with container gardening in order to extend her season and her microclimates. Since I want to garden like I live in Southern California, but I live in Portland, Oregon, um, all of those plants that need it warmer or drier than we are in the winter are in containers and they come inside into our basement where I'm sitting now surrounded by plants in January um, and spend the winter months under lights. And then in the springtime, they migrate back outdoors again and vacation uh, outside on the patio and around the property. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I like it's, that. it's a little insane. It is a little insane. So how many pots do you have right now? Oh, gosh. Just a, you know. You didn't tell me I was going to need to count. Well, it's over a couple hundred. Yeah. 
And give us an example of why and how that has made the difference for you in having plants you love that otherwise would be very unhappy in a Portland winter. Yeah, I cannot imagine gardening without bromeliads, um, aloes, uh, the tropical carnivorous plants, all of these things that I want to surround myself with when I am outdoors in the garden, but would not live through winter in Portland. So they allow me to, the containers allow me to um, do that. Yeah. The, um, the, the, describe the mass migration, will you? The great migration to people because yeah. it's such so, a great vision. It starts in the fall when after weeks and weeks and weeks of no rain, uh, the weather forecasters start to talk about the fact that rain is coming. And generally that's how it happens. You go, it's like the switch is flipped. You go from dry to a few sprinkles and then the rain starts. And it just is, um, this year has been very different. We've had lots of nice dry days, but usually it's winters are just extremely wet. So bringing containers indoors that are soaking wet, uh, the plants are not going to be happy that way. And they're a lot heavier when they're all wet. So I start uh, before the rains begin and it's still plenty warm out there. Our cold doesn't typically hit until the end of November and into December. So it's not a freeze that triggers me bringing the plants in. It is the rain. So first, all the dry lovers come in, uh, the aloes, the other succulents, the non-hardy agaves. And um, that's the first part, the first phase. And then as it starts to get colder, the bromeliads uh, come in. And both groups are in the basement, but they're on separate sides, one a little brighter and, and the other one has the humidifiers running nearby the plants to keep the bromeliads and silenzias happy. And then there's another part of the migration and that is the plants that are for the most part weather or temperature hardy here, they go into a temporary greenhouse that my husband has built. So we have a structure that is referred to as the shade pavilion in the summertime. And it is just that it's a nice shady area to set, but he's developed this enclosure where it becomes a greenhouse over the winter. And so the plants, those pots move in there to stay dry and I also can close the doors and we have a little electric heater. So if it really gets cold, it can keep things a little bit warmer. You know, I want to point out for listeners who are listening to this going, oh my goodness, you're right. Like this is a, you know, I always say gardening is a full contact sport and it is, but uh, Lori is dedicated in a way that I would never be. I am a lazy, lazy, neglectful gardener compared to Lori, but I'm reading the book and I think to myself, that is such a perfect solution to two spots in my garden where the soil is just <laughs> not amendable. I don't know why, but there are these two spots that nobody wants to live. Not the dry lovers, not the sun lovers, not the wet lovers. Like nobody wants to live there. And I read your book, Lori. I've had these same problem spots for eight years. I put a I put a pot on that and I filled it with good soil. And now I have these happy potted plants in these areas 
and I don't have to move them, and everybody's happy, <laughs> and that is thanks to the fearless gardening I have embraced after reading your book. You know, so you go on in this book to cover, you know, growing unexpected things, to, you know, rethink this idea of what is hardy, what is not hardy, you know, are there alternatives to the hardy things, uh, to the non-hardy things you might want in your garden? You then end with these really inspiring garden profiles where how many gardens did you visit outside of your own for the book? There are seven gardens profiled in this chapter and one of them is mine. So the six others, um, I've visited many, many more, but six right. made the cut into the book. And are they are they gardens that you were familiar with before that you have blogged about or like what what was your criteria for gardens that made the book, Lori? They for the most part were gardens that I'd visited before and blogged about. The one that stands out is new. Um, once I had started talking with Timber Press about writing the book was the Point Defiance Zoo and Aquarium up in Tacoma, Washington, mm-hmm. and um, Brian Jones, who gardens there, is the the horticulturist there had contacted me and said, Hey, I, I think um, you might be interested in some of the plants that I'm growing here. Why don't you come by and visit? And yeah. so that one fell in just right at the right time to give me another look of um, a, a different way of doing it in the Pacific Northwest rather than um, our individual gardens that kind of fit a certain profile there. You're gardening, he's gardening, he and his staff are gardening for the different areas that the animals at the zoo come from so you you have it's like a huge botanical garden with all these different environments so the criteria for what gardens went in this chapter were really um, gardens that helped to illustrate the points that I talked about earlier in the book and gardeners that were doing it um, fearlessly basically right right and you know you are grounded in the Pacific Northwest. And I think the examples we've given are are very Pacific Northwest uh, rich as well. But the book is certainly not limited to that. It really uses your region as um, kind of just a baseline for how you rethought these so-called commandments. Um, Are there, would there be more that you would like to add uh, for, for why this is really just valuable rethinking and reframing no matter where you live. There were a couple of ideas that people had about what this book was going to be, that it would be all about spiky plants and that that's what I meant by fearless gardening. And certainly that's part of it because, um, you know, these plants can hurt if you get too close and and there's blood involved. So (laughs) um, that is definitely fearless gardening, but you can be fearless with petunias or ferns or Mm -hmm. whatever. It's a mindset, not a um, type of gardening. It's not about location. It's about um, your approach to your location. For example, I would love to be gardening in Santa Barbara, but I'm not. So I figured out a way to garden as though I do live in Santa Barbara for part of the year. Uh, It's a mindset. The mindset thing, I think, is so important, especially at this exact moment in time when estimates indicate something like 4 million gardeners came online in 2020 as a result of the pandemic and stay-home orders in the United States and around the world, um, 
as a result of social justice reset and uh, this idea that food sovereignty and local economies and production cycles were were probably wise things to invest our time in. And so this idea of experimenting and learning and growing seems like it comes to new gardening ears with particular import. You are so right. Um, There is so much fear in the world right now and so much unknown that um, the garden is really a place people have discovered that they can go and spend time and feel um, in touch and empowered. And the idea that you can be fearless when you're in the garden is so important right now. Um, In the last couple of weeks, as the book has been launched, um, there have been a generous uh, few bloggers that have done launch parties and given away a copy of the book. Um, And uh, Garden Design Magazine ran a promo and gave away a copy of the book. And people were encouraged in both of these scenarios to leave a comment about how they had overcome a fear in the garden. And reading them has just been so, you know, my, my head is shaking, like, yes, 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 this is, this exactly is what I was aiming for, for people to get over all of that baggage that, that our society puts on doing it right, and making it um, Instagram worthy right away. (laughs) Or ever. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's not, you know, obviously, all of our gardens have that moment, and we all want to be there to capture it and share it. But that's not what gardening is. It's the right time, I think, for people to hear that message and know that if you're making a mistake, it's okay. And I think it also gets back to, which is maybe just a general um, hobble in our adult lives, that we're supposed to somehow know how to do these things. That if we, you know, if we didn't grow up with a mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, aunt, uncle, neighbor, whatever, who taught us how to do this, that there's like, it's done. I, I can't garden. I'm not a gardener. And that's just not true. That Which is why I always like to use the term garden practice, because it's not a thing you're born knowing. Lori didn't like pop out of into the world as a gardener. She grew into a gardener. We all learn as we as we grow. And, you know, if I look back at the gardener I was as a young wife, mother in Seattle, Washington in, you know, 1997, and then I look at the gardener I am now, you know, there's just so much evolution and and maturing and growing and learning and and you would not be the gardener you are now if you hadn't been the gardener you were then right. you've got to make the mistakes and yep. and go through the process when you look back on you know this last 16 years in your garden and with the blog and your own embracing of i can do it however i want if it works for me mental and um kind of, you know, spiritual almost uh, approach. What are your greatest joys in, in the garden? And what are your, I think you just shared one one of them for us in terms of having this book out in the world, but are there others you might add, Lori? 
I love that I have been in this same place long enough to have watched my garden really mature. I didn't inherit um, any mature trees or plantings that um, are still here or that were here. It's all been things that I've planted and I've been allowed to watch them grow and watch them mingle and in enclose the garden in a very private feeling sort of um, at least the back garden a very private feeling oasis um, so really staying in one place long enough to watch trees grow to be not something I'm looking down on but something I'm looking up into um, is wonderful yeah and remind people just how big your garden is oh it's small it's so very small um 111, 111 feet deep and 47 feet wide. So the usual Portland urban lot is um, 5,000 square feet, and I'm just slightly under that. So I, I ask that because I just want to um, encourage people to go to the Danger Garden blog, to read Fearless Gardening, and know that even, even with a small urban space, you can create an enormous, lovely, loving, and beloved garden, um, free of free of fear. So I want to end, Lori, um, with asking you to sort of describe for us your answer to that commenter's quote that if you were to present someone with 15 pictures of gardens they would know if you were to present your friends with 15 pictures they would know which one was your garden describe a vignette in your garden there in Portland that makes me know that this is Lori Bowles garden as you're asking that question uh, an image I created for a talk I gave a while ago popped into my head and it is the front garden mm -hmm. And um, the talk was uh, out with azaleas and in with agaves. And I had labeled just in that one photo that was taken a couple years earlier, I had labeled each of the agaves with the word agave, 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 you know, over it. Um, and just in that single shot, there was something like 11 plants visible. But not just agaves, there are um, manzanita and... Um, plenty of other things happening, but the agaves are all very much um, dispersed throughout the front garden. So I think that is um, that identifiable, oh, yeah, that's Lori's garden. There yeah. are all sorts of agaves. <laughs> um, plus, I was uh, working on a magazine article uh, for Fine Gardening, and the editor had asked me, and looking at the, the front of the house, he said, you know, you you don't really seem to mind the fact that your plants are really covering up your house. And I think that's another, um, oh, that's Lori's garden because yeah. it's, it's cramscaped. It's all about cramscaped. squeezing in as many plants as possible. <laughs> it's just such a joy to, to speak with you and share plant love with you. In light of everything, is there anything else you would like to add, Lori? This last year has been such a, difficult year. Um, I don't know what I would do without my garden. And I'm very fortunate that the thing that brings me joy 
um, could continue throughout lockdown. Our nurseries were still open here in Portland and um, getting out and exploring and um, just plants, <laughs> spending time with plants. Yeah. Yeah. Buy them, grow them, share them. Um, yeah. Love them. Okay. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. I I really enjoyed Fearless Gardening, and I'm so happy, proud, and excited that it's out in the world. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It was wonderful to talk with you again. Lori Boll is the Portland, Oregon-based founder and gardener behind the well-known and well-loved Danger Garden blog. In true Danger Garden fashion, Lori's new book, Fearless Gardening, empowers us all to be bold, break the rules, and grow what we love and how we love. Join us again next week when we head to Philadelphia in conversation with a group of young landscape architects whose similarly bold thinking redefines what landscape design consists of for us as individuals and as communities. The Refugia team brings it all together greenly. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, and the podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at cultivatingplace.com. Make sure to check out this week's show notes under the podcast tab there at cultivatingplace.com to see many photos of Lori's fun, colorful, and inspirational fearless gardening in and out of the danger garden. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.